Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. I'm awake now. <laughs> this is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And I haven't thought of what I'm astonished by yet, so you go first. Well, I'm astonished by uh, Jacinda Arden. Actually, I'm astonished um, by a quote uh, from her. Um, as many folks may know, uh, she is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, the what? When she, when she was elected, she was the youngest woman elected as a head of state. She is the second woman, I think, in the world to have a child while mm -hmm. she uh, was serving in office. Um, she announced the first being the Prime Minister of Pakistan, um, Bento. But yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, and she's been praised uh, around the world for how she's handled uh, COVID in New Zealand and her response to uh, the terrorist shooting um, at uh, in the a mosque. mosque. All, all, all mm -hmm. church? Is that what it's called? I think. Uh, Christchurch. Christchurch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she announced yesterday that she was stepping down uh, as prime minister, I think, in, in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, I was listening to the report last night, and uh, someone asked her about her legacy. And she said that um, she wanted her le her legacy to be that uh, one could be both kind and strong. And that really struck me. I don't think I heard anything else after that. Um, because in, in these times, in, in, in the world in which we are now living, that just seems so opposite of the zeitgeist of, of, of the current age. Um, we want leaders who are almost inhuman. We want them mm -hmm. to be, um, uh, we don't mind a little authoritarianism. No, in um, fact, we like it. It makes us feel safe. Safe, right. Right. And um, I, I was just thinking about and meditating on her statement about her legacy, uh, especially that word kindness. And I thought, yes, that is exactly right. As, and, and I don't know anything about her spiritual life or her religious commitments, but as a follower of Jesus, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the, the Bible, the New Testament, the uh, book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians specifically says that kindness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. is evidence of God's Spirit working in you. The prophets, when they prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, was about the coming of one who would rule with justice and equity and compassion and kindness. One of the things, uh, one of the characteristics of God that we lift up from the Old Testament is God's hesed in Hebrew, his, his steadfast love, his loving kindness. Uh, over and over again, the book of Proverbs um, mentions uh, the wisdom of being kind to those who are needy and oppressed. The New Testament describes kindness as an essential uh, of a follower of Jesus. And it should not be surprising <laughs> that someone in a quote-unquote Christian country would name kindness as um, an essential for leadership, but it's not the norm. Well, and I think it's just interesting. Um, we do not... We do... <laughs> We do not associate kindness with sacred, um, and or with, with the or with the holy or the things we prize most, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we associate kindness with niceness and essentially like it's not elite enough. It's not. Um, it, it is not something that you can compete to be. It's not scarce. You know, anyone could choose to be kind, and therefore we just don't honor it. And I do think that in our rush to make Christianity marketable and, you know, make it something that will prop up hyper capitalist and oppressive systems. You can't, you can't really emphasize the kindness of God and then have, you know, quote scripture and call people Christians who are enslavers or who are practicing Jim Crow or who, you know, so that this is why that has to be buried and hidden, but but you can um, talk about righteousness. You can talk about power. Um, you can talk about vengeance and punishment, and only, and only a certain kind of morality. Well, sure, right, yes, but I mean, I think you can twist someone into thinking that somehow theologically it's salvific to have a um, 
to have to kidnap people and take them to another country so sure. that you can save them mm -hmm. spiritually so they can go to some segregated alternative afterlife. You, you can maybe twist someone into believing that that is in the mystery of God salvific, but you cannot convince anyone that it's kind. You cannot lift up kindness as a virtue of God and call this a Christian nation and then have women standing on an auction block watching their children be sold away, right? So this is why the kindness of God has to be buried and devalued um, so that it doesn't disrupt the profitability. I mean, it's all about commerce. And it's so tempting for Christians to adopt the weapons of the world mm -hmm. to fight against um, the systems of injustice that we see and neglect kindness. Well, and I think just, you know, we continue to be troubled by the fact that the cross is a stumbling block and that Christians look like fools in the context of the dominant cultures and the systems that are passing away, right? And we try to make ourselves look, uh, you know, attractive and worthy in, in, in the eyes of the people who don't follow Jesus. And in doing that, we bury the parts of Jesus that actually would save us. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I think that, that, I mean, it is astonishing and remarkable and well, and, and she is pretty remarkable and astonishing in the work that she's done. And I can only imagine the amount of, um, uh, misogyny and sexism that have come her way. And she said in a press conference yesterday, um, I know that there will be people who, you know, when this is over, they will be asking and they will be uh, searching and they'll be questioning, what is the real reason right, right, right. she's, you know, I'm, I'm stepping down. And she's, no, look, um, in the six years that I've been prime minister, I have given my all. Right. I've given my all. And that is the reason. Be assured that that is the well, reason. Well, she said, I just don't have it in my tank yeah. right now. And that's yeah. so, it's so extraordinarily ordinary and human that you I I have to confess that for a moment I wanted to dismiss that and say no and I had to come back and say what no that is that is a very um vulnerable way of being a leader and it's well, so I think we don't believe it because we, we don't see it very often. Right. Because most people who get to that level of power then become consumed with how can I hang on to it for as long as possible. Absolutely. And so when people pick up power and then set it down again, we're deeply suspicious of that and think, oh, there's no way that someone would do this unless something they had to. Yep. So there must be something out there that's ready to drop. And obviously, I think this is the power of humility is sort of recognizing that I have limits and I'm not the only person who can serve or fulfill this role. So when I get to my limits, I can set this down. Um, so yeah, I think it's good stuff. So what's astonishing you? Um, I think just r relatedly a little bit, um, my middle daughter's favorite teacher announced yesterday or day before yesterday that she she's leaving. Um, so this is like really sad for, um, my daughter, my youngest daughter's teacher, um, the day before Thanksgiving break, she came home with a note saying that her teacher was leaving. And so I think, um, you know, last year, my middle daughter, uh, had, uh, you know, they teach in teams and at one point there are four teachers on the team and at one point three of them were gone. Um, so, I mean, there's just a crisis in education in our community. And it's a crisis that I believe, was designed um, that you have people who really want um, education to be a scarce commodity that people compete for. Um, and so there's a move to take resources away from publicly accessible institutions and redirect them to institutions that are um, limited. Um, so while charter schools are not private, um, what they are is publicly funded private schools and they market themselves that way. So we get flyers all the time for the many charter schools that exist around our house and they're marketed as um, free tuition 
K through 12 school, right? So this this idea that we want to serve only the people who can access this community, maybe not financially, but you have to say like, there's no buses to go to and from school. So if you are someone who would need a bus to take your kid to school, then even though technically you could go to the school, you can't go to the school. Um, There's no free and reduced lunch at many of these schools. So if you're a person who would need free and reduced lunch or could use trust that benefit, you're not going to be able to access that school. You have to go through, as opposed to a public school where you will get assigned to a school no matter what, you have to go through a, um, a an online process to sign up for these schools. It's, so if you don't have the sort of cultural or technological savvy, you're not going to be able to access these resources. And and many of these schools, they're, they don't have to they don't have to serve everyone. They can't discriminate by race, but they don't have to serve kids with learning disabilities or kids with special needs. So if you have a kid who has an IEP or something like that, your kid can't have access to that school. And um, what people don't know is that charter schools have a practice, and this is documented, and look it up if you don't believe me, because it sounds, I frankly, it sounds unbelievable, but there's a practice that charter schools will admit certain number of kids and then they can kick out a kid at any time for any reason. And so they can admit a lot of kids, keep them in for the first 30 days of school, and then kick them out and keep all of the public money for that child for the whole year, but then send that those children back to the public schools who have to take them, right? So there's just all kinds of ways that people exploit loopholes in the system. And then, of course, charter schools just don't have the same level of accountability. And so if they fail, which they frequently do, um, you know, those kids just automatically, the public schools have to absorb them. And, and so, you know, my kids are in public schools and um, they're in public schools, certain schools that many people perceive to be not desirable. And I just am always like, I just think it's so ironic and terrible to me that people are so afraid to send their kids to these schools and so convinced that they're lesser or dangerous or defective. And then my kids are in these children, in these schools, and just being taught by amazing educators and having really outstanding experiences. Now, they don't have all the clubs. They don't get all the special field trips. They don't get the shiniest facilities always. But like the learning community is good. And the teachers who are there are wonderful. Now, it is true that these teachers you know, the public schools won't fund teachers, but they never stop funding the educational industrial complex. So they will fund the heck out of consultants and elite tests and, you know, trainings to just add more and more and more requirements and work onto the backs of teachers on a, in addition to what they're doing and to take away more and more and more discretion from teachers so that they're not allowed to tailor what they're doing to their students. Um, so I just, you know, it's creating this environment in the public schools where A, teachers just get excoriated all the time, even from public officials, from parents, from students. The schools that they serve are often just disparaged. They're mocked. They're expected to work all kinds of extra hours and pick up extra jobs as well. They're they're constantly, I mean, just it makes it harder and harder. They're getting less and less funding. And then charter schools and public schools will come around and see really excellent teachers and walk up to them and say, hey, come work for us. We'll pay you whatever, a 25% salary increase, and you won't have to do all the reporting, and you won't have to do all of this training, and you won't have to administer 78 tests to your kids. And so I just... I don't, I want to be clear, I I don't think that anyone is obligated to set themselves on fire to keep my children warm, right? So I understand that teachers should, if they can find a job to do what they love, they should take it. And I don't, I don't feel entitled um, at all to anyone's laboring in unsustainable systems. Um, but it's just devastating. And um, hard. And I, I feel like we're just setting these public schools on fire to watch them burn. And many people are thinking that's fine because I've got school, school choice and I'll take my kids and put them in a charter school and just not recognizing that, you know, a, all of our schools could be excellent 
if we would stop believing the lie that we don't want them to be, right? Like I watch, and when I tell you there are so many charter schools around my house, um, you know, I just watch them grow and grow and I see, you know, they have these activity buses and that, you know, all the things. And I just think like all of our kids could be going to schools like these because we have the resources for them. Obviously, it's just because we insist on inequitably distributing our resources and we are, I think, on purpose wanting our children, our biological children or the children we identify with, we want them to have a superior experience because we feel like that gives them an advantage instead of recognizing that we're actually sending them out into a, into a world that is filled, is really just built on misery. And I think we have a lot of businesses who are, their, their business model depends on having a class of desperate people who cannot request things like a predictable schedule or anything close to a living wage, right? And so, you know, it's just not shalom. But I think what's just striking me is, I think it's just so funny that people are desperate to get out of the school where my kids are having such a good experience and where they've had such such excellent teachers and the schools that they're desperate to get into are coming to the schools that my kids are in and taking their teachers. Why? Because they're so good. And I guess I'm just astonished at, you know, just the, the gift that educators, especially in all educators, but especially educators in public schools are giving to our communities and to students. And I'm so grateful. And, you know, I'm not sad that, um, Quinn's math teacher is leaving. I mean, I am sad, but I'm not mad that she's leaving. I'm just so glad that she came, right? And I'm so glad that my child had access. And not for nothing, you know, the one, one of the most wonderful things about these schools is not just the diversity of the student body, which has been amazing for my daughters, and they are all in schools that are majority black, which has been such a gift for my white daughters, but also their teachers are black. So they are growing up under the leadership and authority of black men and women. And that's really good for my white daughters. And I'm so grateful for that. So yeah, I grew up in a town just outside of Memphis. um, And there was one public elementary school, one public middle school, one public high school, and everyone in our town went to those schools. And if you went to a private school, you left town and went into the city of Memphis for that private school. And that made, I think, a real difference in how I grew up and how, mm-hmm. and in my experience of public schools. And what you're talking about uh, with charter schools really shows you how um, classism and white supremacy can morph and change in new ways, you know, post integration of schools, you know, there's, there's this, and and you're exactly right. This is not the fault of teachers. There's not the fault of teachers. There's a message being preached to especially white middle-class parents and wannabe middle-class parents, whether you're black or white, that says, um, listen, Resources are limited, the world is limited, scarcity mentality, and if you want your child to have a good life, you've got to make sure your child beats every other kid, Mm -hmm. right? And then for some, you know, white families, I'm sure the message is just blatantly racist. You don't want your kids going to school with those black kids. Right. right? Well, and I just want to be clear, I am talking specifically about my experience as a white mother raising white daughters and really wanting to raise them with a certain set of anti-racist values and, you know, really wanting them not to have to do some of the same unlearning that I had to do. So I, I know that if, if my children weren't white, it would be a totally different calculation for me. And so I don't have anything to say about the choices that teachers make. And I certainly don't have anything to say about the choices that parents um, who are raising children of color and black children have to make and just all the balancing that they have to do of protecting their children from a world that's hostile to them in a way that the world currently set up is not hostile to my daughters. And so I, I just, I'm very much aware and have a posture of humility about that. I'm just talking about myself 
as a white parent and as a person who has a lot of privilege and a lot of cultural access and agency um, and, and what it feels like to walk out my values. But what you were pointing to, I think, is something very real that is lost in our current cultural moment, and that is a sense of we. We are in this together. Mm-hmm. It is us. We are not competitors. We are together. Um, we, we are in the same boat, and there is enough for everyone. Well, I mean, that's certainly the theological foundation that we reason from. And I think, you know, one thing that the statistic that continues to astonish me is when um, the school system was resegregated here in Charlotte, and make no mistake, it has been resegregated, um, you know, the argument for that, which came from a lot of folks who moved from other parts of the country to Charlotte, the argument was, we don't want our kids on buses. We want neighborhood schools. And that was a great dog whistle because our neighborhoods are segregated. So if you Correct. want neighborhood schools, then what you're saying, you can say, basically, I want my kid to go to school with the people who can afford to live in my neighborhood or the people who do live in my neighborhood and nobody else. And and people say, like, well, it's not about race. It's about I don't want my kids sitting on a bus all day long. And what is important to note, and this is a fact, is that Charlotte buses kids more now than it did in the height of busing to integrate schools. So the reality is the districts and the way that schools are fed and neighborhoods feed into different schools are gerrymandered to preserve um, certain access to certain schools to powerful families. And it's done. And I have some sympathy for a CMS board because I think they have an impossible task, but they're faced with a really terrible dilemma that if we make white parents and middle-class parents mad, they'll just leave the district and take even more funding from them. And so, you know, there's just not, it's very hard when you make changes and the, and the real estate industry is huge in this because real estate agents want to make sure that certain properties, if they can say to parents, this will feed into this school, that raises the value of the property and the commission just exponentially. So there's a dispute going on. I don't know if you saw it on the news, but um, so Charlotte is in Mecklenburg County. I live in Union County right next mm-hmm. door. And uh, there is a neighborhood that's right on the line. And there's this dispute now. Is it in Mecklenburg County or Union County? It has been considered Union County. And so um, there was a news report the other day that says, oh, we think there's a mistake. Actually may belong in Mecklenburg County. And families are losing their minds primarily because of where their kids go to school. And I just want to say, if you are a follower of Jesus and you feel like a school is not good enough for your kid, but you're fine with that school for your neighbor's for kid. someone else's kid. You have a theological problem. You don't have an American problem. You have a yeah. theological problem. Mm-hmm. If it's not good enough for your kid, it's not good enough. So uh, anyway, I just have been... But the primary thing is I just want to say it, it bemuses me, it infuriates me that people don't want their kids to have what my kids are so deeply blessed by. And I just think it's so, it's like we are, we are terrified of the way of the blessing. Like we are rejecting something that would, would really save us um, and heal us and give us hope, right? Because you're so scared of these things that actually are good. (laughs) Anyway, so what are you thinking about? I have lots of, (laughs) (laughs) and we have limited time today. Um, I received a a phone call from an old friend of mine, uh, Melanie, and um, (laughs) she called me and said, you know, I was cleaning out a closet and uh, going through some boxes, and I found an email from you that I printed out like 2012 or something. It was some time ago. And she said, "I, I, on purpose, printed this email out years ago to just hold on to it and keep it. And she says, I found it, and... The first line said, <laughs> the first line of this email that I wrote to her. Can I just say, this first line of this email is why, if sometimes if people are like, how are they friends? The first line of this email is why we're friends, <laughs> this right? We're this friends. is, this is the, yeah. So the first line of this email, and I don't remember writing this email, but apparently I did. So <laughs> the first line said, this is the worst day 
in my professional career. Like, I don't experience myself being a melodramatic person, but that is just so, I can hear the violins playing. I mean, let's just say, what's important is not to belittle those feelings, but just to say, that was your experience in that moment. That is how discouraged and frustrated. In that moment. And and her point was, I mean, she asked the questions, do you even remember what this was about? I said, I have no clue what was going on then. And she said, exactly. In the moment, we think the worst thing is the worst thing, and we just we just can't see past it. And now you have some perspective. You've probably gone through things right, right. many times worse than that particular day. But on that day, it, you were so down and so discouraged. And I'm sure that you have so much more strength. Like this thing that you were dealing with on this particular day, at this point in your life, is probably nothing. But um, it, it's just, it's yeah. a matter of perspective. I mean, I think it's really funny just to be like, you wish that was the worth it. I mean, right, right, that's right. <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, but it, I do think it's really important, it, you know, to the extent that folks are listening to this and are in ministry in general, maybe, you know, not having been in it as long as we've been privileged to be in it. And particularly if people are doing the work of transformation, which is just like capital H hard. It's very challenging. Just to say like, yeah, it, it's that bad some days. And that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong necessarily. It means it's that hard. And also to recognize like on a day like that, you need to be able to say, this is where I am and to have a friend you can talk to about it and, and a friend who will not belittle those feelings. And also to just kind of know, um, this, it's not going to, you know, this feels like nothing could be worse or it's not possible to go on. And that's a feeling. And so it matters, but it's not, it's not Jesus, right? Like it's not the thing that ultimately determines reality. So, but no, I, I, oh man. I mean, it is funny to think also sometimes the things that really are the hardest, just depending on where we are kind of spiritually, you know, sometimes things that are really bad just really don't shake us. And then sometimes it's the things that really aren't in the big picture, that big of a deal that just like knock us off. And yeah, no, I'm, Yeah, and um, there was a time in my life I used to journal all the time, and I need to um, go through some old journals to see if I was journaling um, those years. And wait, is that the whole email? That's all the email said. No, (laughs) she's going to send me the whole email, and she was in the car. Yeah, and um, and so was I. So she's, I just. I just have that first line memorized. And so she's going to send me the rest of the email. (laughs) Because I think I'd send that email. This is the worst day of my professional life. Send, right? Like, like I want to know what what was even happening. And the fact that I can't remember, that gives me some joy that I I just can't even remember what was happening. I mean, it is a testimony. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that about old journals because I've been looking through a lot of things as I do research for this writing project and I have looked through some old journals and I mean, it's been helpful because sometimes I never know when I'm, particularly when I'm um, supervising college students or seminarians who are younger. I, I don't, I struggle to know what is an appropriate expectation sometimes. And so reading my own stuff at that age, I'm like, oh, okay. And um, I just think it's so funny I mean, it makes sense, right? Like when you turn to your journal, you're often overwhelmed. So like there are exactly zero entries of me being like, everything is good. (laughs) Every journal's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like this is the worst. I'm so depressed, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I am just obsessed, completely obsessed all the time about quiet time. Like, I'm sorry, I haven't been doing quiet time. I know I need to get back to my quiet time. I haven't been doing quiet time in the morning. I know my quiet time. I'm Everything is terrible and it's because of my quiet time. I know it's my fault because I haven't been spending quiet time. Like, it's just so funny how I, I mean, just how real that was yeah. and that people around me were sort of presenting the idea of like discrete, designated, consistent, regular time alone with God, quiet time as like the thing, the thing that determined your spiritual health, your intimacy with God, your ability to be used by God. And so when I would be driven to the point of desperation to journal, like at this prayer journal, it was always like, I'm so miserable. Everything is terrible. I'm so sorry. I know I'm a piece of crap. It's just because I'm not doing quiet time. If I could just do quiet time. So I just have so much sort of compassion for this, um, 
young woman who just was so convinced that, you know, everything would be Eden if only you could get up early and spend an hour in silence and prayer and study and just like a completely, I think, unhealthy, ego-driven understanding of what was possible and what I was responsible for and what faithfulness and fruitfulness looked and like. And listen, as a person who used to spend a lot of time in quiet time, a lot of time praying, a lot of time journaling, it was back during the days when I was single, had no children. Um, life was very different. My schedule was very different. And I couldn't understand why others didn't spend the same amount of time, you know, doing what I was doing. And now <laughs> that I'm in a different stage in life, like, oh, I get it. Life Life be life in sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I just also think there's something to be said for if that's your thing, like that's fantastic. And also, like I like other people more than me, and I often really experience the presence of God yes, with a, other a limited, people. We have a limited understanding of spiritual form, spiritual practices. Mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. So um, keep going. I'm sorry, I interrupt. No, no, no. That's all. That's all. Can we talk about what I'm thinking about? Because I really, or you yes. think there's not enough time? Yes. Go go ahead and start. Well. No, there's not enough time, is there? Do we have to just pause? Because no. you got to go and well, you can, pick up you your can, child. <laughs> okay, we can debate it, or you can start. <laughs> why, why, all right, all right. Listen, start talking no, here's about the thing. It. Well, you start talking about it, and if there's a part two, there's a part there's, two. All right. So I have several friends who are looking, have a call to ministry, and have been looking at seminary, and these um, friends are. Um, Several of them are, um, I mean, they're just lots of different people, but several of them are people who have chosen not to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, I want to say from my perspective, um, my background as I have an undergraduate degree in biology with an emphasis in immunology, I have always um, received excellent access to medical care and excellent care and I come from a community of people. By the people. way, my friend Jean in Omaha thinks that you do all things well. <laughs> like she heard you sing um, in your katata, uh, Christmas katata, just... and she's like, "Like, who knew?" I was like, "Yeah, she's a trained opera singer. Yeah, um, Kate Murphy does all things well." Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, awkward. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed and I'm going to just move on. Um, so well, all things except, except a compliment. That is there, right. you go. There, there you go. go. There it is. Um, so I just, um, feel rightly or wrongly, like I understand, um, how vaccines work in general, how this particular vaccine was created, the kind of technology, um, that it uses the, um, RNA technology. Like I've been privileged to have access to understanding what that is. And so there's just a lot of context for me, both in terms of what I have been privileged to study and also the ethnic privilege that I carry as a white person, that I have a lot of trust in the medical establishment because why wouldn't I? Um, and there are people who have had both in the present and historically very different experiences yes. of the medical community in this country. And I know everybody always thinks of the Tuskegee Airmen and mm -hmm. the syphilis experiments, but I also just think people just don't understand that that's not an anomaly that is typical. So people don't know that, you know, the person who is considered the father of gynecology, which is kind of creepy when you think about it, this guy, James Marion Sims, who has statues of him all over different medical school campuses and has, you know, credited with founding modern day gynecology. And like, wasn't he wonderful that he cared about you know, women's bodies and particularly thinking about how childbirth um, could be less painful for women. But he experimented on enslaved women. And so all of these techniques and medical instruments that bear his name, he did those experiments on, ex uh, on enslaved women. He did not have consent. They were physically chained 
two um, operating tables. He operated on them without, oftentimes without any kind of pain management technique. He definitely experimented on their bodies. And then when he did use pain management techniques, you know, a lot of these women ended up addicted to just horrific drugs. So, you know, this is like this exploitation of the bodies of black women and people in the scientific quote establishment deciding that their bodies didn't have agency in and of themselves, but existed in order to create medical treatment for bodies that were prized, i.e. white bodies. Like this is, it's turtles all the way down. So you think about when I was a biology student, we learned a lot about HALA cells and you're studying immunology. And like, I, I mean, I definitely remember working with them, learning about them. What I never learned was that HALA stood for Henrietta Lacks. Like I knew them as HALA cells. Like other people learned about it by the movie and by the book. But I, when that book came out, I was like, holy moly. Like, and, and so I learned about how they were this amazing cell line and how they would reproduce infinitely and how indebted we were as scientists to the discovery of these mystical cells. But absolutely. And I went to school in, you know, I graduated from college in, 1997. So like not a million years ago. And there was not a thought. No, like it wasn't even on our consciousness to even ask the question of where did these cells come from? And did anybody have any, like it just wasn't even possible to conceive of the question, right? So, I mean, I, I can just go on and on and think about that. I mean, there was just an article that I read a couple of days ago about Current faculty members at um, at the University of California, San Francisco, who had to come out and apologize in the School of Dermatology because they did medical experiments on prisoners to see like the effects that pesticides would have being rubbed into their skin. Like they stopped the experiments in 1977, but the but the one of the men who did them is still to this day, a faculty yes. of the medical school. So, right. Yes. So, like, I just think it's so easy for white people not to understand that if you have a lot of trust in the scientific community, if the medical community, and you think, oh, the only people who don't trust these institutions are like, you label them and say like, oh, these are hyper-privileged, like kombucha drinking yoga weirdos who are into conspiracy theories. And so it's just not reasonable for anyone to have real concern about entrusting their bodies that like that is such a privileged and ignorant assumption to make. And when people in my life in general, but particularly black women say, I don't feel safe doing this. I just feel like the the least I can do is take a posture of deep, deep humility about that because I understand the terrorism that has been inflicted on black women's bodies for generations in the name of, quote, science. And so for a black woman to say, like, science has never been about saving my life. And I am know that I am seen as dispensable in this nation and specifically in this industry. Everyone, no. But it is just fair to have those concerns. And so when I have friends who are applying to seminaries and all of the mainline seminaries to this day have a policy that if you do not show proof of vaccination and boosting, you cannot be admitted to these seminaries, not even as a full remote student. Wow. Not even as a full remote student. Wow. If you do not get vaccinated, says the leadership of these seminaries, wow. you cannot be a part of our community. Now, I, I want to say two things about this. Actually, I want to say a lot of things about this, but here's what I'm going to say. If a conservative seminary that we look down on and sit in story. judgment of, if they said, we're not admitting female students unless they submit their medical records to us proving that they are not on birth control. Oh, I cannot even imagine. I cannot even imagine all over the, the rage of righteousness that would 
I, I, I'm speechless, clearly. If conservative seminaries said, we are not going to admit students of any gender unless they submit their medical records proving to us that their gender identity and hormones match their gender assigned at birth. And unless you are not, like we get to decide whether or not the medical treatment that you are choosing is appropriate or inappropriate, we would lose our minds Absolutely. about them imposing that on, you know. So I just think like, do I have a huge problem sociologically? Yes. Do I have a huge problem with institutions that are historically white? Leadership positions, and thanks be to God, are held by people of every ethnicity and racial identity. And I'd like to point out to my friends, my family in the PCUSA, that everyone has a racial and ethnic identity. Everyone does, even white people. We So, I mean, when we continue to say, like, well, there's people, and then there's people with a racial ethnic identity, what we are doing is reinforcing this duality of thinking that there's, like, quote, typical there's or normal, normal people, people, and then there's the <laughs> racial ethnic people. Like, we all have a racial ethnic identity, and we need to understand that these institutions were founded and designed and the culture was maintained and continues to be maintained by white people and a lot of the most powerful positions and funders and maybe not i mean that just this is a this is a part of the inheritance of these institutions. And I think that people have a picture in their head of who they're excluding when they keep and maintain these policies. And I think, and I'm speaking, having been a white person my whole life, I am thinking about what I suspect about other white people. I think that they are thinking, anybody who doesn't want a vaccine is not somebody I wanna be in community with anyway. So I don't care if they're here or not, because my kind of people are the kind of people who get vaccines. And I think that is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. And as a white person, if you create a policy, whatever your rationale is, and then you see that what it is doing is creating barriers that specifically apply to black women, I don't I think you have to really look at that and wonder, is this a good policy? And I have a theological problem because the reality is the only thing that makes us a community in Christ is our proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul talks a lot about, hey, there's a, there are things that are required and there are things that are prohibited. Those lines do exist, but there are less of them than you think. Most of what we consider to be essential is actually preference and cultural expectation. It is adiaphron. So if you think celebrating Halloween is fine, if you think celebrating Halloween is of the devil, you can get there from scripture, right? Yeah. What you can't do is say, you're not a Christian Correct. unless you have abstained for Halloween or you're not a Christian if you abstain for Halloween. You Correct. have to understand that this is how I read the scripture, but there are other people who read and apply it differently. And one of the ways that we testify to Christ the reconciler and to bearing with one another in love is by bravely coming into community with people who read essential things differently than we do. And I understand, and listen, I I mean, I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the vaccines, but I have the vaccine. When they made it uh, accessible to ki little kids, my kid was five. We were the first in line. I We've had vaccine drives at the church. Like, it's not that I don't trust the science. I do trust the science, and I do think it is faithful to get a vaccine. But what I know for sure is that I am nobody's doctor, and I'm deeply uncomfortable with pastors really feeling like they have the moral and spiritual authority to require certain medical procedures of members of their congregations or to ban them from their congregations if they don't comply with certain. I just think the history of Christian life in this country is too toxic to be comfortable making declarations like that. And while I do understand that maybe things were different 12 months or 16 months into the pandemic, it bothers me that 
almost every other institution in the world is not making these kinds of distinctives anymore, but, but we still are. I just am deeply, 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 deeply troubled. And I want somebody to give me a theological justification for why somebody who chooses not to get the COVID-19 vaccine does not have the moral right or standing to be part of a Christian community. Because I don't think you can give me one. Not a Christian theological exam. If, if choosing how you want to protect your body from a disease is not adiaphron, then I don't know what is. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> is that all? <laughs> I'm just well, really, listen, it's been bugging me for so, a long time. So I heard someone say recently that the church in our time seems always to be several steps behind culture. Instead of leading culture, it often follows culture. And so when it comes to COVID, um, other places open up, the church is still having these uh, vaccine mandates. The church- And excluding people from online learning. You're Listen, excluding people from online it makes learning. zero sense. It makes zero sense. I mean, I could understand saying, hey, if you're not vaccinated, you need to wear a, a mask all the time. I could understand, even though everyone else is unmasked, I could understand saying, if you choose not to be vaccinated, you can only be an online student. I could understand saying like, hey, we need to make sure that people who are immunologically compromised are also safe in our community. I understand that the people who are imposing vaccine people who are wanting to encourage vaccination are coming from a place of love and goodness and wanting to protect everyone. I understand that. And I personally agree with you. I'm just saying like, it's not working. And part of the reason I think it's not working is because there's no acknowledgement that the people who don't want to get vaccinated are not crazy. So do you think these institutions do not see that they're excluding or that they don't care? I mean, I think that I am going to show some prudence and discretion and not speculate about, I mean, I think this is just the result and I think it's problematic. And what I do think is that the institutions I'm aware of have a deep and sincere and authentic commitment to anti-racism and to becoming a more diverse community that looks more like the kingdom of God. Like I know that that's sincere. So what I'm getting is like, and this is just the work of being human and particularly the work of being, I think speaking as a white person, a white person doing anti-racism is to understand that when you are sometimes under the sway of these powers and principalities and ideologies and systems that you genuinely abhor in yourself. You can't see it yourself. That's why you need someone else in your community to say to you, hey, this is what's happening. Or you need to work to create a community where it's safe enough for someone to say, like, this is the truth that you, you know, that's unpopular to say. And I, I mean, there's just a big power imbalance. And I'm also thinking that the um, longing for institutional survival will move you to compromise your values, which is why so many churches can tell you, we know we're supposed to reach out to our neighbors who look different. Yeah. We, we, we know this, but if we, if, if we actually do what we know to do, what we believe scripture tells us to do, then our quote unquote church will change and maintaining this institution the way we like it with our preferences is more important than what we actually know and profess to believe. Yeah, I mean, I just think that the reality is you you have to get really curious about people who aren't doing something that you think is such a slam dunk manifestation of your values, like genuinely curious and Absolutely. That's what I, that's what I don't see. And what I experience in our denomination is a lot of like, well, if you're one of us, you're one of us. Mm -hmm. And if you're not like, okay, like, like not really understanding that our exclusivity is a, is a 
liability is a huge liability. And not like we almost flex it, like oh, we're Presbyterian Christians, instead of recognizing like to the extent that we can't be in authentic community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, like that's a tragedy and it's a deep liability. And I don't want to lose what we have to offer to the body of Christ, but I want us to understand that what we have to offer to the body of Christ is a beautiful gift, but it is limited by design and we need other people. We are not sufficient unto ourselves. And I think a lot of times we function that way. So when it comes to historically white institutions uh, dealing with um, racism, what does, um, what does curiosity look like? Well, I mean, I think really understanding like, hey, here's someone who wants to be a part of our community. I want to listen deeply as to why this feels like an unsafe choice for them. What are their values? And is there a way that I can find a way to include you that doesn't compromise other core values of our community, right? And I just think after having gone through what we've all gone through, we know that there are ways to be part of a community, even if you're not in the same physical space. So that's what's infuriating to me. Like one institution has, I don't know if they're still, but like had said, okay, in order to decrease the risk of COVID transmission, we're going to require that students only come on campus, like half of you come on campus one week and that same week, half of you are virtual. And then the next week you switch. So I'm like, this is an institution that is already set up to have students virtually be part of the community, but you're still excluding someone because they won't get this, they can't, won't, don't feel safe getting this vaccine, but you already have a mechanism for them to be part of the community virtually. And I just think, I mean, this is the problem with sort of having a system where you have to believe before you belong, right? You can't influence anyone if you won't include them in the community. Like I do want my friends to get vaccinated because in all humility, and I know I could be wrong, but I really do think they will be safer. Like I, I think that as a human being following Jesus, but I also am just very aware that I'm not Jesus. And I don't think that I know better than they do. What is the right call to make for their individual bodies? Like, I just don't think that I think it's so interesting that you know, in, in a denomination that says, I think rightly so, that we are prayerfully pro-choice and that we want abortion, our policy statement is we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And like that says explicitly, we do not have the right to legislate what a woman does with her body when it comes to a pregnancy, but we absolutely believe that we have the right to legislate what a woman does with her body when it comes to a vaccine. Make it make sense. That is not that's not right. I mean, you know, I, I just, I, I'm just, I am deeply disappointed because I see the ripple effects of these decisions. And particularly, I see the ripple effects of just not even being willing to engage with them as serious theological problems. You're disappointed. Are you surprised as well? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, but well, I no, am. It, it's not a, I, 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 there's no judgment in that question. It, I, I ask it sincerely out of curiosity. Um, and, and I'm just thinking about my own, um, <laughs> for as long as I can remember, you know, being in the world, navigating um, communities, uh, institutions, and with some, you knock on the door. Some, you try to um, push the door open. Others, you um, you would like to be a part of, but you walk away, um, and you you ask you 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 ask yourself, is it worth? I, I see I see the boundary. I see the the, the wall that they are creating for me they this this institution does not love me right this institution um i could i could i could make my way in if i wanted to um well, I just and think there are those that i choose to, to walk away from and that that's that's hard work that's exhausting well work. and discerning that is yeah. right and i just think that the reality is to say, th I mean, this is before you can even be part of an institution. So to say, like, do I really want to let an institution that I don't even know yet mm -hmm. 
tell me to make a decision, a medical decision that is life, potential life altering consequences. And I'm tired of hearing people say like, oh, I mean, to be clear, I think there are a lot of people who are deliberately and maliciously sending, spreading bad information about the vaccines. And to be clear, again, I am a pro-vaccine person. I think that they are safe. I think they're effective. I think they have saved millions, millions of lives. Um, but there are people who have suffered adverse effects. And the people who suffer adverse effects tend to come out of certain communities because those communities are historically under or poorly served by the medical community. So for for me to say, statistically, I'm not worried about those adverse effects affecting me or my family, that's a different calculation than somebody Absolutely. who has different risk factors. Absolutely. And so I just think there's this callowness about, I, I just, I, I mean, I am disappointed that these are the decisions that these institutions are making. I am surprised because ultimately I understand wanting to decrease risk right? I understand that. But I also think there is an inherent risk involved with following Jesus. And again, I think if your policies concerning COVID-19 risk are the same today as they were two years ago, I don't think you can say this is just about risk. Like where does it end actually? Like how long do you demand to see people's medical records? And well, I mean, that just causes me to think about how slow the church is to change, how slow the church is to respond. Um, we are, someone once said the church is like an ocean liner, not a speedboat. We just take a long time to turn. Well, I think the problem is we need to see ourselves primarily not as members of the church, but primarily as followers of Jesus, Absolutely. right? And that, mm -hmm. I just think, and I understand the inherent tension of that. Like, I am obviously a person who believes deeply in church, um, but it's just really important that we understand that church is the means to the end, not the end. And um, yeah, I just, I mean, I just am really grieved over this. And I, I guess part of my disappointment is just, like, I understand the strengths and weaknesses of our denomination, and we have lots of problems, but stupid isn't one of them. And this is my problem. It just theologically, I don't think you, this is this works for me theologically. I don't yeah. see how you can theologically say Jesus isn't calling or equipping people unless they make this particular medical decision. I don't see, you know, the reality is we are a community of people who prides ourselves on understanding how systems work and the the centrality of the call to anti-racism. And it's just easy to be all about calling out other institutions for the ways that they are still functioning in racist systems, but not being able to see that, like, it's us too. Do you think that... Um the decision of these, um, we keep saying institutions, but we're talking about educational institutions, Correct. seminaries. Um, the requirement um, to have the COVID vaccination, do you think this is more about race or more about class? I mean, honestly. I mean, not the effect, but the thinking of the institution, the, the motivation of the institution, what's underneath it for the institution. So I just want to say, I, again, in no way do I think this policy is designed to exclude people in, in zero way. Like I know that it is not the conscious intent of anybody developing a, a vaccine policy for any of these institutions. So like, Hey, here's a backdoor way that we can make sure that these people aren't around the table. I, I absolutely do not believe that's the case. I absolutely believe that the people who are making these calls especially, you know, in the thick of it, are just trying the best they can. They're not epidemiologists. They are trying to figure out what what is what is being a responsible community look like? Like I understand that. I do not think it's intentional. But here's the thing. I was thinking not not an intentional shutting people out, but the blindness. Well, I think it is a problem when your table is not diverse. So you only Absolutely. see things a certain way. And I mean, and I, and I will freely admit that obviously I'm making assumptions about all of this because I don't, I'm not at these tables, but I'm also saying, you know, I do have a primary experience of what I see on the ground in terms of who I see is being excluded. And I, I just, I, I just think it's a real tragedy. And I, um, 
And the bottom line for me is like a person might say, well, how do you feel about a hospital requiring its staff to be vaccinated? I think it's different. I mean, I think for a hospital to say, hey, we're in a medical community and this is what we do and we can't put vulnerable. Like, I think that's a different, it's a different culture. It's a different value. It's different. Um, And I think that the church, you know, is not the same as the as Google or Meta or a corporation that requires it. Here's a situation where um, seminaries, universities run by the church could learn from the local congregation, Mm -hmm. right? Because we do not have vaccine requirements to worship on Sunday morning in person. And as far as I know, around the country, we have not had major problems with COVID in our congregations. Like, you know, uh, when I say a problem, one in which we would need to reinst- uh, create some denominational rules about it. Mm-hmm. I just, what I do think is this is a way where the culture war, I think, has infected our thinking. And it's easy to just believe what you're hearing in your media atmosphere, mm-hmm. right? So if you are a person who is identified as progressive sure. and you hear the issue mm-hmm. framed as responsible people who care about their neighbors and selfish, ignorant jerks who believe in Pizzagate and like, you know, it's easy just to think like I am on the side of truth and light and justice and reasonableness. And anyone who's not on this side is just crazy and worthless. And I don't care if they're in my community or not. Right. Like it's just easy without even being conscious to not see that you're in a, you're in a bias bubble. Mm -hmm. And I just think like, I wish my friends had made a different choice, but I understand respect and honor the choice that they are making. And frankly, I don't, I don't even need to understand it. Like it's not, it's not my role. Like I am not allowed to make other people's medical decisions. Like I don't understand why we think that we are. And especially when you do the thought experiment about how would you feel about a quote conservative seminary trying to mandate some of their deeply held values when it comes to controlling the medical treatment of people in their community we can then clearly see like well that's abhorrent that's an overreach well then why is it an overreach when other people do it but not when we do okay i just i i just think it's a it's a blind spot and it's not that I mean, one of the reasons I'm sad is because I think these are wonderful communities and I think they are led by people who have really important ways to pour into and nurture and shape the thinking and values of, of students who come across the threshold of those communities. Like, I think they do have value, which is why I want the people that I care about to have access to them. But I also think it's just really easy to believe your own hype and just think the way I see it is the way it is. And that's not true. Okay, I think I've probably gotten myself, to the extent that anyone listens to this podcast, I feel like I've probably gotten myself in sufficient trouble. You are not in trouble. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, um, I, I mean, I get that these are really hard decisions. And I remember what it was like for you and me to be making them, you know, earlier in the sure. days of the pandemic. And I just frankly feel a lot differently. I had a lot of grains of salt for it earlier. I, I've always thought it was wrong. But like, I just think to not be reevaluating it at this point it, it is, it, it, I don't see how it's justifiable now to continue to have this policy. Yeah. So. so we should be done. We should. I mean, I think I saw you had to like text someone to go pick up your child. Like we really, <laughs> really, really have run over. Um, so you're not preaching this week because you have a fabulous guest preacher. Yes. In. Nicole Thompson is coming to preach at Dorada Church on Sunday and she is fantastic. The saints at Dorada Church love her and love her preaching. And whenever I say Nicole is coming, they perk up, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in my flesh, you know, I I sometimes feel a kind of way about it, but then um, I'm loved as well. So there, there, there is enough. There's not a scarcity of love at Dorada Church, but you are preaching a fantastic word from the book of Exodus. And um, 
I'm excited for you because you've got some great insight into the text. Well, thanks. I'm excited about it. Um, so I hope that everyone will find a place to worship this Sunday. And if you would like to check out what God is doing at God's Church at Derrida Prez, that is D-E-R-I-T-A. Uh, they worship at 11. You can find their um, YouTube and their uh, YouTube channel and their podcast, which is on the Podbean uh, platform. And if you want to find their website, gosh, why um, can I never get this right? It's okay. I need to stop trying. Wrong. Because <laughs> I just confuse it. It's okay. It's okay. It's Grace added- and mercy abound. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Well, you know, His that, mercies never come to an end. They are new week, every morning. This week, I got a, a text from Yolando Hinton. And the Wait, text what? said, oh. it said, you are so kind. God is good. Immediately followed by another text that said, oh, that wasn't for you. <laughs> no, <I'm sorry. laughs> what time are we getting together on Friday? And I was like, um, so I am kind. And God is good. You are and kind. I don't think that you really needed to go out of your way to say, like, that wasn't kind. for you. That no. was for one of the saints at Derrida. But anyway. it was it was odd just coming out of the blue. It's like, oh, no, I was te- meant to text someone else. And I hate it when I do that. But the website for Derrida Church is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. S-I-T-E-S. Correct. Yes. And if you want to know about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website. Do you know our website? Why would you do that to me? No, it just makes me feel better. It's uh, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel and our podcast. Um, Wherever you get your podcast, just look for The Green Tree because there's a lot of groves out there. And uh, you can worship with us at 10 a.m. And uh, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.